0: I think pastors like to point out when um, there's unusually, like, few people, but I think it's worth pointing out there's, there's actually a lot of people here today. We're kind of running out of seats, so um, that's unusual. Yeah, that's unusual. So if you want to see fewer people, maybe just come back next week or come back the week after, because so, that happens. It happens. You start a church, it happens. You Sometimes you show up and you're like, I don't know if anyone's going to come today, but um, But that's what it is. Uh, We are in the book of Job today. Um, We've been journeying through the book of Job, and it's been, you know, somewhat excruciating, to be honest, right? Because it's a book of suffering, and uh, it's painful to go through this book, and some of it's quite repetitive. Um, And there's this poetry. Most of it is poetry. And so when we're dealing with this book, the the kind of the conventions that we, the normal conventions that we think about when we approach the Bible, like it's some kind of manual, there's a lot of easy answers, we kind of have to, like, set that aside, because this book is different. This book is very different. And in our bible explaining class last Sunday, one of the things I mentioned about wisdom literature is that, number one, uh, the book of Job is wisdom literature. Okay, it qualifies as wisdom literature, but it's not in any kind of conventional way because oftentimes when we think about wisdom literature, we think about the book of Proverbs, which tells you exactly what you're supposed to do. It's very clear in what you're supposed to do. It gives you kind of these pithy, pithy, athori- ath- Let's try that again. Pithy aphorisms. I just wanted to use that word. I'm not really sure what that word means. Um, it gives you these pithy aphorisms, like these really short kind of things that you can kind of tweet. Um, I know what that part means. Um, and and be popular and say, like, this is the thing that you do, that you put into practice. Uh, the book of Job, people don't usually quote from. You know, there's maybe like two sections that people quote from, and they're kind of out of context. And so what I want to g- wrestle with today, this the, the theme of today's message is, What is wisdom, and how is it that Job exemplifies wisdom? That's what we're going to find out. So um, a definition of wisdom that I want to offer is that it's a body of knowledge, okay? A body of knowledge or or principles related to a given topic, okay? That's what wisdom is, and ordinarily, when we think of wisdom, we think of some kind of specialized knowledge, right? We think of some special knowledge that's going to make a difference or an impact in your life. Like when I was kind of thinking about wisdom as I was preparing this sermon, I thought of uh, back to the Future Two, which is frankly just kind of a forgettable movie um it's kind of forgettable. come on guys the first the first one's really good, the sequels are not so good, okay, so in the back to the future two, and i don't, I don't think i'm well I'll just spoil it I'm sorry guys so you you it's not fine, fine, fine there's a there's a, there's a part in the movie, there's a part in the movie where they're taking advantage of, of knowledge that they know now today by going back in time, right? That I don't think is that much of a spoiler, right? So, um, and it relates to, I'll just say, it, it relates to sporting events, knowing the outcome of sporting events. And I think about that a lot because I, I just have this fantasy of going back in time and like putting a lot of money on Google or Tesla or any of these companies that's, their stock value has skyrocketed. And last week I did talk about money and talked about the temptations of money. And that's a huge temptation when we think about it. And when we think about wisdom, we think about, man, if I just had the knowledge to take advantage of something so that I could make a lot of money. In fact, one of the premises of wisdom today is that we tend to like really just listen to people that are rich and successful, right? I mean, if Warren Buffett wasn't a billionaire, we would not listen to any of his investing advice. The reason why he has credibility, the reason why we look at him as having wisdom is because he's rich. That's what we associate wisdom with as those who are successful and frankly being rich and wealthy. And so I want to explore that today because I think that's actually not how the Bible operates and how the wisdom of the ancient Near East operates. It's actually not like this special knowledge that you use for some kind of financial gain. And the way that I want want to talk about it, and this I will use a movie illustration, and it's okay because I think most of you have seen it, is the 1984 Karate Kid. Has anyone? Okay, I'm I'm seeing some nods, and there's a teenage Daniel Larusso, and he gets beat up, and he meets a Japanese immigrant named Mr. Miyagi, and Mr. Miyagi teaches him karate, and in the process of teaching him, he has him wax his cars, like clean his cars, right, and so as part of uh, as part of teaching him, I think once you get to the '80s, right, I think that's a kind of a moratorium. What's that word like? statue of limitations like I can I can spoil the movie once it's in the 80s yeah I think I think it's fair I think it's fair um and so as uh as you know Miyagi-san is teaching Daniel how to how to wax the car and Daniel just sees it as menial labor um later what Daniel what Mr Miyagi-san does is he has him do those gestures again wax on and wax off and he discovers he's actually through the through the practice of waxing learn how to block punches So he'd actually been practicing martial arts the whole time, and he didn't know it. And so last Sunday, um, I talked about wisdom as being like these different— or the wisdom literature, which is the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, and the book of Job. They're like different martial arts dojos, okay? They all have their kind of school of uh, thought and their philosophy, right? So you have like— The sequel to Karate Kid 34 years later is Cobra Kai. And you have Cobra Kai, the dojo, which is strike first, no mercy. Strike first, strike. Strike first, strike hard, no mercy, right? And then you have Miyagi-Do, which I don't actually know what the mantra for Miyagi-Do is, but it's very gentle. It's like a bonsai tree, right? It's very gentle and petite, right? That's kind of like the motto for Miyagi-Do. And the idea here is that each of these books of wisdom kind of represent a philosophy, and not just a philosophy, but it's a way of life, okay? Wisdom in the Bible is meant to be practiced. It's something you do. It's, some, it's, a, it's a way that you approach life. And Job has a way in which he approaches life. There is a view of life that Job is practicing. And so I want you to keep that in mind as you go through this text. And you can turn with me to, pro, to Proverbs, to, uh, to the book of Job, chapter 28, and I'm gonna read. And this is poetry. We've talked about poetry. So you can be aware of the parallelism that's happening and just appreciate the beauty. This is Job 28, which is arguably the very center of this book. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the core, from the core, from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air, far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread. But underneath, it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eyes sees, and his eyes sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth and is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. And the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be named of the coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and say we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. That's the reading of God's word for today. And we're actually going to cover the the next three chapters as well. And we're going to have to do that quickly, but we're going to spend the most time in this section. And the verse that I want to give you, because this is kind of the answer, right? If if you were going to tweet something from this chapter, the the verse that you would strip out of its context, and, and maybe in a good way, is the last verse, right? Verse 28. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn from evil is understanding. And we're going to try to unpack that today. And we want to do the opposite of stripping it out of its context. We actually want to read it in its context. And one way we do that, well, the way that there's only one way you do that is to, to read around it, right? So the poem I just read, and then also to read after. But what I want to do is I want to read after first and then come back to the rest of the poem. Okay, so we're going to do that. So if you look into chapter 29, this is, um, if you look at that speech almost like a tangent, this is now Job's kind of defense. This is his final words. We've gone through, I don't remember how many cycles, um, but this is, this, uh, the book of Job is kind of like a rap battle, right? Um, Job experiences the suffering, um, and then he uh, makes a lament, and then his friends accuse him. Eliphaz, Zophar, and there's one more guy. Eliphaz is a Temanite. Bildad, yes, how could I forget Bildad, yes. God. Always got to remember Bill, Dad. Okay, so there's those three, um, and they're, uh, they each take turns making accusations against Job, and then Job responds, right? And th- it's go through these cycles. It's almost like, it really is like a debate, right? It really is a debate that's happening here, um, and this is Job's closing speech. This is uh, the defense's closing speech, and this is what he says. Um, in chapter 29, he begins to talk about the honor that he's received. And I'll just read a couple of them. In verse 4, in in 29, it says, As I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent. And then in verse 7, it says, When I went out to the gate of the city. The gate of the city represents the place where people rule. That's where the elders, the the prominent men of the city, um, go and like speak their wisdom. And it says, When I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew. And the aged rose and stood right? And then in verse 11, when, they, when the ear heard, it called me blessed. So here, what's the message that uh, Job is proclaiming about himself is that pre-tragedy, before he lost um, his children, before he lost all of his wealth—and by the way, I neglected to mention that. Not only did he lose his children, he lost all of his wealth. He lost all of his riches. Before he lost all of his riches, people looked at him um, as someone honored. And they listened to his advice because what did I say again? When you're successful and you're rich, people listen to you. And that's just not—that's not just a modern-day phenomenon. That is an ancient phenomenon. People appreciate those who have wealth. That's what they listen to. Um, And then second, there's a transition here in verse 12. It says, because. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. And I want you to pay attention to verse 14. It says, I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. Okay, so he is continuing to emphasize how much good he did, and it was very specific It was to give attention to the poor. And to give attention to the poor was, for Job, righteousness. That's what it meant to be righteous. And so if we allow the text to define what righteousness means, and maybe even uh, the end of 28, which is to turn from evil, there's something about helping the poor that is good, that is right, that puts you in right standing with God, and that puts you in right standing with other people. And this past Wednesday, we had a a seminar, a Zoom seminar, that my wife and Esther from Garden City put on um, about PATH which is uh, Permanent Supportive Housing, and it was really good because um, they had a— Esther was the moderator, and I had just all these questions, and I've I've helped out and done some activities with PATH, but I have a lot um, of—what's the right word—skepticism, okay? I have some skepticism um, about this organization because I just want to know that they're helping these unhoused people to become independent, okay? Because really, for me, what's most important is that these people get jobs, And learn how to live on their own okay and so one of the questions i asked is like what percentage are employed and do you do you equip them to be um do you equip them to you know to make money because that's ultimately what they're supposed to be doing um and esther was really good she was very diplomatic about it um and i don't think she actually asked that in exactly that way that's why you have a moderator right to kind of like make the questions more gentle um and then i you know judy and i were talking afterwards and the perspective, I realized some of the values that I was uh, importing into that question. Because what I really care about is for people to become independent. (laughs) That's what I'm, that's really what my value is. And yet, if you look at what Job did, it doesn't talk about, hey, I equipped (laughs) the poor to live on their own. He actually prides himself in the poor being dependent on him. Okay, there's almost like, the p- people that are poor—it's actually good to depend on other people, and that's what Job's attention was on: is how can I help these people? And so last week, I know I talked about, and I, and, and frankly, it's, it's, it has to do with ambivalence over my own wealth. One of the things I, one of the questions that I asked you guys to wrestle with is like, where does your wealth come from, right? And I don't think it was—it nec- wasn't intended for you to question the sources of wealth or, or the company that you work for. I think ultimately, what I was wanting to do is to help us understand what are the values we have around money. Because there are temptations from it. And if there's something positive that I would say, and this is why it's great to go in a series, right? I can, I can kind of correct or adjust things that I'm saying, is it does matter how we spend it. <laughs> it does matter how you spend your wealth. You may not know the, origina- the origination, you know, of how your money comes from, right? I think it's very, very difficult. It's really impossible, if you really think about it, how to know exactly how your wealth came about right? Whether you're supporting something good or bad, because in, indirectly we're all part of the system. And yet we are responsible for how we steward that wealth and to give attention to the poor, to the needy, to the orphan, to the widow, to the fatherless. Um, those are all aspects of how we are called to apply and use that wealth to be generous. And that was a way in which Job expressed his righteousness. And so one way I would think about this whole definition of what it means to turn from evil, it has to be to give attention to and help the poor. Because that's the context of what Job is talking about. Job is now defending himself. So that's my first point, that uh, to to give to the poor, to have others be dependent on us, is not something wrong. It's actually a good way to use our wealth, and it demonstrates something about the quality of our relationships— Okay, because to give to the poor means to grow the quality of your relationships. And ultimately, that's what righteousness is about, the kind of standing you have with God and with other people. And yet this uh, chapter continues, and in verse 30, it has a transition. And it talks about the loss of relationship that Job experiences. So when you look at chapter 30, you'll see there's a transition here, even just beginning in verse 1, which is why they made the chapter there. Verse 1 says, But now they laugh at me, men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained, to set with the dogs of my flock. What should I gain from the strength of their hands? Men whose vigor is gone. Through want and hard hunger, they gnaw the dry ground by night in waste and desolation. They pick saltwort on the leaves of bushes and the roots of the broom tree for their food. They are driven out from human company. They shout after them as a thief. And let me skip down to verse nine. And now I have become their song. I'm a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me. Okay, so what's he saying here? There are those who are poor and that who are needy, and they're the lowest in status. And even the lowest status people avoid me (laughs) because I have no honor. My wealth has been taken away. And this is difficult for us to understand because we don't live in an honor-shame culture. We live kind of in an honor-fame culture, really, where you can be disconnected from other people. and be fa- You can be famous and disconnected from people. Like, those go together. But in an honor culture or an honor-shame culture, when you experience shame, you're disconnected from people, too. Like that, that's, you're connected from people in honor, and then you're disconnected um, when you're in shame. And this is what Job has experienced, the breakdown of relationship, okay? And that's kind of that's one of the aspects of his suffering, is this breakdown of relationship. And yet what's fascinating here is that Job continues to cling to God, and that's going to be evident in this uh, last chapter, this, this 31, the very last of things that he's talking about. This is his final appeal. And what I want to do is not read it, because it's quite long, But what I want to do is share a couple things um, from this chapter. Yeah, you just have to kind of transition between the the sun and the shade because it gets (laughs) really—it gets hot and it gets cold. Um, So I want to identify the different stanzas. Okay, so when you look at this poem, you see different stanzas, and it's actually separated quite well. Verses 1 through 4 talk about sexual purity, right? So one of the meanings to turn away from evil has to be including sexual purity. And then 5 through 8— He walks in truth and integrity. In 9 through 12, he's faithful to his wife. He doesn't look to another. In verse 13 through 15, he's upright with his servants. Okay, he's an honest and good boss. You can also read that as slaves. Verse 16 to 23, a repetition from before. He's given to the poor, the fatherless. And if he's raised his hand against the fatherless, he, this kind of, if it's kind of rhetorical, you know, then, then you, can, you, you can punish me. Then my whole defense falls apart. And then in 24 through 28, he talks about wealth. He talks about making gold his trust. That he does, he, he has not put his trust in gold. And then 29 through 37, this longer section, he talks about loving his enemies, about confessing his transgressions, about not cursing. And in 38 through 40, he goes against corruption. So what? what's the message here? You know, what's the idea? What's the premise? That Job's life has been lived and exercised in wisdom because he has turned away from evil. He has practiced wisdom. Wisdom is moral. It encompasses morality. And Job has exemplified that. And if there's any question whether or not Job... Um, exemplifies wisdom. Turn to Job uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Okay? Turn to Job 1, verse 1. I got it. It takes me a minute here. And it says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that was blameless and upright. And remember the definition of wisdom from Job twenty-eight twenty-eight: One who feared God And turned away from evil. And because wisdom is the fear of the Lord and a turn away from evil. And so it tells us in the chapter 1 1 that Job is one who exemplifies the practice of wisdom because of his fear of the Lord and because of a turning away from evil. And so I think it's worthwhile to pause at this point and ask ourselves, like, hey, where is the gospel here? (laughs) You know, what? What is this idea of the gospel? How does it, how does Jesus play into what we've just talked about? And throughout this book, we've mentioned, hey, you know, there is kind of the gospel in embryo throughout this book of Job, right? He points to resurrection. He's hoping for something beyond the grave. Even his fixation about death actually speaks somewhat about the gospel. And so let's examine the, the verses that come up. In this poem. So we're now going to go back to 28. Okay, and the beginning of 28, the whole idea here is like what's going on, right? Where is this treasure? There's a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. So let's just step our way through it. And then iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the core. These are the precious metals of that time. What are the precious metals of today? If we were to just kind of modernize this or or think of this in in our own terms, what are the precious metals of today? Bitcoin. Thank you. Yes. I have been thinking about crypto. Who who else said something? Silicon. Silicon. Yes. Lithium, cobalt, nickel. Some of you are familiar with those materials because they're used to mine for batteries. (laughs) They're materials that go into solid state or different kinds of batteries, which power electric vehicles. Um, And then you have silicon, which is for uh, semiconductors. And then, yes, you have Bitcoin. (laughs) And you can mine for Bitcoin. Maybe not in exactly the same way, but there is a mining for Bitcoin. And what I would say is they're all common in that we view them as precious and we're searching for them because we believe there is a wisdom in them, okay? And it goes on. She opens a shaft in a valley. In verse four, away from where anyone lives, and the whole idea is you've got to really search for precious metals. And then in seven and eight, no path, no bird of prey knows it. the falcon's eye has not seen it. The pro- the proud beasts have not trodden it, so the, even the animals don't know where to find these precious things. And then man is putting his hand on the flinty rock to look for it as well. And so I've been I've been thinking, you know, I've been I'm mean, even been talking to me. You know, I've been thinking about crypto and Bitcoin and mining for that, and and I think. And implicit in our culture today, there is a wisdom and the value of the things that we look for. And as I think about things like crypto and the people that are proponents of it, and I think about this movement called FIRE, and hear about this term called FIRE, this FIRE movement, which stands for Financial Independence and Retire Early. There's an explicit value. There's a wisdom in that. And you know what that wisdom is? The highest, don't tell me what to do, <laughs> okay? The wisdom is that we want to be as independent as possible. It's part, it's part of the word in fire, right, to be independent. And the people that are proponents of crypto, you know what the wisdom is? We want decentralized finance. We don't want any government to tell us the value of our money because our highest value is to be independent. That's the wisdom of this world, to not have any linkages to anyone else. You don't have to depend on anyone else. Well, you're depending on a consensus algorithm, really, but you don't have to depend on any person, you know, to be able to, like, uh, validate your worth or tell you what to do. And what's fascinating to me is even if you look at both ends of the political spectrum, they're both at different ends. Don't tell me what to do with my body. Don't tell me to wear a mask. Don't tell me what to do with my unborn baby. Don't tell me what to do. And I think that's, that's just a really interesting thing, how much we value that as Westerners, this idea of being independent. And yet, what the author of Job is saying, starting in verse 12, is that no human can find it. (laughs) This human value that we have, this human wisdom of independence, maybe it's not actually good or right. Because in 12 it says, But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? And this is Job saying this after, and, and after this he defends himself, and yet he's saying, Look, I don't know where it is. It says, 13, man does not know what's worth. It is not found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me. And the sea says it is not with me. You can't buy it. I don't care how much Bitcoin you have, right? It's not valued in the gold of Ophir, the precious onyx or sapphire. There's no, gold or, there's no, equivalent, there's no equivalent precious metal that you can trade it for. And then in verse 20, from where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Death has heard rumors of it. And then finally in 23, we get the climax of this poem. God understands the way and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. You, none of us can find it on our own. And what he's saying is even Job himself, even though he is righteous and turning away from evil, it didn't, righteousness did not come from him because righteousness is a byproduct of wisdom. It's related, it's connected to wisdom. And yet the, what he has is fear of the Lord doesn't come from himself. It ultimately comes from God. And you can only see it if you read it with the entire poem. 27, then he saw it and declared it he established it and searched it out. Wisdom ultimately comes from the Lord. And how then do we understand this as Christians? One of our homework from last week, if you're part of our Sunday school called you know, Bible Splitting class, was to read the letter to the Corinth church, right? The first Corinthians, Paul's first letter. And in that letter, what Paul does is he attacks Greek philosophy and he calls it wisdom because wisdom is from the Greeks. And you know, it actually is because it's through the Greeks that we Westerners have what we understand as wisdom today. Some of these ideas of independence came from the Greeks themselves and Paul is actually attacking that. He's saying there is a wisdom that the Greeks have, but the wisdom of the cross is totally different. The wisdom of the Greeks, I mean, maybe it's too far to say valued independence. It's too far, it's too much to say that but it valued something about what was popular at that time. And so uh, Paul makes this argument that preaching Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. That it is about, in verse 25 of the first chapter, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And he asks these believers to consider their calling that not many of them were wise, not in any kind of conventional sense, according to worldly standards. Not many of you were of noble birth. And 27 says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And then he culminates in this. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And the thing that I have been wrestling with as I've been thinking about independence and how much I value it, and I raise my kids to grow in independence. Like that's the whole purpose of our parenting, is to teach our children to become independent. And yet, what this passage is teaching, and what I believe Job is saying, is hey, you know what? You actually need to do the reverse, you actually need to grow in your dependence. Upon God, because it is through Jesus we receive his righteousness, his life, death, and resurrection. What that meant for us is we receive the character. We receive his turning away from evil, and that becomes our righteousness, and that's wisdom from God. And Job maybe doesn't quite, you know, get there, but you see the beginnings of that in this poem, that ultimately— this fear of the Lord comes from God himself and no treasure, no gold can purchase it. In fact, the only way Job reaches it is through suffering. And that's how Jesus reached, reached it for us is by suffering on our behalf. And so the sharing question I want you to, to ponder today is how are you practicing dependence? <laughs> how are you practicing dependence? Because one thing I was kind of hitting me as I thought about um, you know, people that are homeless is what if there's something spiritual about their dependence on other people? Okay, Because I value independence so much, but what if there's something spiritual about this practice of dependence, about about being someone who's poor and depending on others? And even Jake said it, because evangelism is a practice of dependence. Because whether you succeed or whether you fail, you are preaching the gospel. You preach the gospel to yourself in failure. You preach the gospel to someone else when you are successful. But either way, you're preaching the gospel because you're depending on someone else's righteousness. So would we exercise that dependence today? Because in that is wisdom. Let's pray together, Father God. Thank you that you embody wisdom, and that wisdom is a practice. And so, Lord, as we are gathering today, in the words that we sing together, and in the in the songs that we that we proclaim, would we exercise dependence on you and on each other? And would we find in that dependence a fear of you and what it means to turn away from evil because you did that on our behalf through your son? We pray this in your name. Amen.